was Barira. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Barira. Barira was one of the close companions of the Prophet Sallallahu and a, and a good friend of our mother, Lady Aisha bint Abu Bakr, bint Abi Bakr Siddiq. May Allah be pleased with him. Barira, Lady Barira al-Habashiya, the icon of wisdom and independence. And we're, again, we only have enough time for uh, a few words about her. And inshallah, my hope is that everyone gets the book and they, they spend time. They spend time, inshallah ta'ala, looking at her story and researching her story. There's too much about her to say in this short amount of time. But first, I want to say that this woman, uh, she was formerly enslaved uh, from Ethiopia, according to most of our scholars. And uh, she... Uh, bought her freedom, inshallah. We'll be talking about that. And uh, she was a former, formerly enslaved woman, black woman, who gave advice to the ruler, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. Rahmatullah anha. And so we're going to be learning about Barira, inshallah. Let's begin with these slides. Barira, her name means uh, one who is good, one who is righteous. Bir uh, is, is one who does goodness. And we see that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is reported to have said, For everyone who is named, they have a portion of their name. And Barira, she reflected goodness. She reflected righteousness. She reflected piety, uh, as we'll see. And, and that's also... Uh, demonstrated by her being in the household of the Prophet being in the household of Lady Aisha, our mother. May Allah Ta'ala be pleased with them all. And her her father, uh, according to Imam al-Nawawi, his name was Safwan. So she was Barira, the daughter of Safwan. I don't know her mother's name. Uh, Sadly, but if any of you, mashallah, can do the research and you find it, please share that with me, mashallah. Next point. Uh, she is distinguished for a number of things. There are a number of ahadith that she narrates, as I mentioned. She actually cautions Abdul Malik ibn Marwan against shedding the blood of Muslims. Against shedding the blood of Muslims. And then she narrates a hadith that she heard from him uh, regarding... Uh, a person, a Muslim being seeing paradise and being prevented from entering paradise because they shed blood. May Allah protect us from that. She's also distinguished by her, the story of her manumission. She was, uh, she was owned, quote unquote, so-called owned legally by the Banu Hilal which was a clan, a tribe in Arabia. And there are other narrations that he, she was, uh, her master, so-called master was Utbah ibn Abi Lahab, one of the sons of Abu Lahab. Uh, others mention uh, some of the Ansar. Nevertheless, uh, I want to relate to you the story of her manumission, inshallah ta'ala, on the authority of our mother Aisha, who said, may Allah ta'ala be pleased with, her 
Barira came to me and said, I made a contract with my people. This is called Kitaba, right? And, and Mukataba is a, a contract between a bonds person uh, and a master where they pay for their freedom. They pay for their liberation. And so she made a contract with her people for my freedom in exchange for nine awaq, paid in installments of one uqiyah per year. Right, This was a, a kind of a currency uh, that was used in the time of the Prophet Assist me. So she comes to her friend, our mother Aisha, and asks for her help. And we know that the Prophet and his family were always ready to help emancipate and free those who were enslaved. And in our day and age, as Muslims, we should be ready to free those who are enslaved. Did you know that there's approximately 40 million, 40, 40 million modern slaves in the world? We should be on the forefront of that. She, Aisha, said, if your people would like me to pay for it, I will pay it for them, and you will be counted among my freed people, my mawali. So Barira went to her people and told them that, however, they refused. So, she, so the, the, this goes on, inshallah, the next slide. So she came from her people while the Messenger of God وسلم, was sitting and said, I made that offer to them, but they refused that I be a freed woman to anyone other than them, right? So our mother Aisha offered to pay for her manumission on the condition that Barira would be her freed woman. But the Banu Hilal refused this, which was quite strange, quite odd. The person who frees you, you're supposed to be their freed person, right? not that of others. But they wanted to hold on to her. They wanted to control her and keep her. So Aisha informed him. The Prophet Wasallam then said, take it and give them the condition that we previously mentioned for an individual is considered a freed person of the one that frees him. And then again, the Prophet went and stood up among the people. He cared, I want you all to focus on the emotion of the story. The Prophet cares so much about Barira. Aisha cares so much about Barira that they're willing to give their money. They're willing to give their time. They're willing to do whatever they can. And now the Prophet ﷺ is making a public service announcement saying as to what follows, Amma ba'd, what is wrong with men? And one narration, Aqwam, what is wrong with the people who place conditions on contracts that are not in the scripture of Allah, that are not in Kitabullah Azza wa Jal? Any condition that's not in the, the scripture of God is invalid even if they were to number 100 conditions. The judgment of God is truer and the conditions placed by God are more trustworthy. An individual is only considered a freed person of the one who frees him. And that settled it. Alhamdulillah, she uh, was freed herself and she was the freed woman of our mother Aisha radiallahu And there are many narrations about their uh, connections with each other, alhamdulillah. We're going to end with one other hadith about Barira regarding her husband. This is a love story, brothers and sisters. It's a story of unrequited, unrequited love, unreturned love. Her husband was Mughith. Mughith was enslaved. He was an enslaved person 
a man who was also black. And after her manumission, so this story follows the last, after Barira's freedom, the Prophet gave her the choice whether or not to stay married to Murith, who was still enslaved. And this is what happened. Abdullah bin Abbas, God be pleased with him, said, the husband of Barira was a black bondsman who was called Murith. And I'm using the word bondsman and bondswoman bond, uh, instead of slave because the word slave carries so much negativity with it in uh, the West, especially in North America. And so I'm opting for this word, inshallah ta'ala. He was a bondsman of Bani Fulan. There's also a narration that he was the bondsman of Bani Al-Mughira. And the Prophet said, it is as if, Ibn Abbas said, it is as if I'm looking at him while tears are flowing, streaming onto his beard. And the Prophet said to Abbas, Ya Abbas, O Abbas. SubhanAllah. This is his father, Ibn Abbas's father. Does it not amaze you that Murith loves Barira so much while Barira hates Murith? SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. So the Prophet ﷺ said, why don't you take him back? And look at the, qu the question of Barira. Ya Rasulallah, O Messenger of God, are you commanding me? Like, is this a command for me to keep him, stay married to him? Rasulullah said, I am only interceding. And then she responded, I have no need of him. I have no need of him. And the Prophet did not pressure her, did not force her. And this shows a number of things. Her willingness to obey the Prophet Number two, the Prophet respect for her choice, her agency, her autonomy. And number two, it shows her independence. This is a woman of great sagacity and great intelligence, and she knew what was right for her. And inshallah, we'll end with that. That's just the taste. This is one vignette of one of these great, great, great uh, companions of the Prophet And in conclusion, I'll, I'll stop with this. This book uh, by Imam Suyuti does not only mention the black companions of the Prophet it mentions black Muslims who lived before him وسلم, and as well as black Muslims who lived after him so I thank all of you I thank Sheikh Talut Dawood for uh, helping with the translation and so many others reward you all Alhamdulillah I was asked to speak about the responsibility of the religious leadership imams, scholars and others dua those who work in calling people to the religion, uh, their responsibility in addressing social ills. So this is a very important aspect of the mission of the of the Muslims. Uh, and it's, it's, there are many, many inducements and encouragements in the Quran, the Book of Allah, and the Sunnah of His Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which really highlight this uh, one. Uh, phrase from a longer hadith that comes to mind Wallahu fi al abdi al abdu fi akhihi that Allah will continue to help the servant as long as the servant is assisting his brother or sister, whatever the case might be, but linguistically his brother. So uh, the the uh, 
the the help of Allah, the assistance of Allah comes to those who are assisting uh, their their fellow humans and more specifically their fellow believers. Uh, uh, you're giving uh, divine aid and you're giving given your sustenance based on your treatment of the poor and downtrodden uh, amongst you. And so there are many teachings along this line. And so the, the leaders have a responsibility to encourage the believers in that regard and to ensure that these teachings remain highlighted uh, uh, for, for the community, that we're a community of, of service, a community of compassion, a community of, of caring, a community of sharing, a community of, of love, a community of mutual support. And then the uh, instructions were to uh, talk about specifically in terms of addressing social ills, uh, the racism that exists in our society and in some uh, ways is manifested in our community itself, the Muslim community. Uh, so uh, it's, it's also responsibility because that's a disease. And so it's a responsibility of those in leadership to draw people's, call people's attention to eradicating that disease. In that context, I think is, is very uh, important for us to understand, again, what, what advantages do we have as Muslims in terms of addressing uh, this disease? So uh, the Muslim community is, is never going to be Black Lives Matter as a movement. I'm referring to Black Lives Matter as a movement. We're, we're not going to be that. Our, our uh, epistemic foundation is, is different. How we look at reality is different. And, and so I think it's very important for us as Muslims to really decide uh, if we're going to address this issue as strictly, so definitely, I, I just mentioned a couple of narrations that uh, indicate we, we look at it, the, the issue uh, from a, a material perspective. But our advantage lies in approaching the issue of racism as a spiritual disease. And this is something uh, Arnold Toynbee talks about in his essay about Islam and the West and what Islam could offer the West. And one of the things he astutely pointed out was uh, Islam could offer the West a way out of the morass of racism, which he in that essay identifies as a spiritual disease. And so I think as Muslims, if we're going to really address this issue from an Islamic perspective, then we're going to have to address it from the perspective of it being a spiritual disease. And that being the case, ultimately our contribution is to raise people's consciousness above the realm of the physical. Because color is physical. Uh, Shaitan, uh, and, and this, as we know, and it's often quoted, uh, Shaitan identified his physical superiority. 
قال أنا خير منه خلطني من نار وخلطه من طين that shaitan said I'm better than him so that's the supremacy you talk about racial supremacy why خلطني من نار you created me from this physical stuff that has distinct colors it's white it's orange it's red it's blue depending on what you're burning and you created him from this physical stuff called clay that has also physical color and it was black clay as most of the 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 exegetes posit and so shaitan uh he introduced racism at a physical level and we have to address it as believers at a spiritual level and in doing that, we are, are, have a foundation to unify people. Because if we take the physical distinctions to their extreme, we're going to end up exactly or exacerbating the situation this country and increasingly the world finds itself in, where you have the extreme advocates of a, a polarizing white racism against the extreme advocates of a polarizing black racism and the the problem will get worse it will, and the the approaches will be mutually reinforcing in terms of making the problem worse because there's no physical foundation for unity as I, the, it, it involves as they say ijtima'a two opposites meeting like the pen cannot be moving and still at the same time. That's meeting of two opposites. The room can't be uh, light, okay? The room can't be light and dark at the same time. It's either dark or it's light. And the two coexisting involves the meeting of opposites. And so this extreme focus on physical white consciousness and an extreme focus on physical black consciousness doesn't provide a foundation to unify people to transcend the problem. And so once we have gotten in touch with our identity as who we are at a physical level and affirmed and, 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 and uh, our who we are, and this is why this course is very important in that regard, the question is, where do you go from there? And so it's a responsibility of the religious leadership to say to people, now that you know who you are physically, and now that you can begin to understand and transcend those shackles that were holding you in bondage, now it's time to move to your humanity. And addressing the issue as a spiritual problem that will ultimately only be uh, 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 solved when everyone moves beyond physical consciousness to spiritual consciousness to put us in touch with our ruh and our nafs that has no color. Now we have a foundation to unify people. And so this program and this approach that Celebrate Mercy is, is giving a platform to is a critical step, but it's a step towards a higher goal. 
And if we if we're stuck at that step, then we will begin to fester in the intense American version of racism that that makes us and it's it's probably the most intense in human history. The South African even apartheid. You you had uh, uh, some nuance in how the whole racial situation was approached. It's ugly, it's nasty, it's unacceptable, but American racism is more nasty and more unacceptable. And that's why we have yet to have what they have in South Africa as a step towards solving the problem at a physical level, a level of truth and reconciliation uh, council. We've never come to grips with that in America. There's never been a truth and, rec and reconciliation. And so that's indicative of the depths of this problem. And so once we are affirmed, are affirmed, once we know that there are people who share the lineage, African lineage, people who share black descent, even if they're not Africans, you have black folks in India, you have black folks in Arabia, you have black folks in Palestine, but, once once that awareness and once that consciousness of who we are as a people and how uh, the challenges we face at a structural, institutional, societal level, we have to then move beyond that and look at the issue from a spiritual perspective and then bring people to the awareness of just as they, we're brought to an awareness of who we are as black people or people descended from Africans and people descended from slaves and the common history and the common bonds that that is forged amongst us. Once we have that awareness, now we have to be the people who call people. For, why? Because we've experienced the pain and the hardship and the trauma. And that's a wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he's given our people in this land. Now, once you've experienced in full, you and you know the pain, you don't want anyone else to go through that. And so to prevent people from having to go through that, we have to lead people from all ends of the racial spectrum to their humanity through their spiritual well-being and through their cultivating their spirit so that they transcend the physical. And is, isn't that the, the, the goal of the spiritual life in Islam? It's, and, and, and is transcending the chains of physicality, transcending the, the histories that are rooted in the physicality, transcending the discrimination the, 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 the glass ceilings that are rooted in the physicality and then moving towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and being empowered by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring the message of Islam to people from a platform and calling them to a, a, a reality that can unify people so that we can smash racism once and for all. And that's the only way we're going to smash it. That's the only way we're going to smash it.
with Allah, with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if we don't move towards that level, we're going to exacerbate the problem. Wallahu alam wal musta'an. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wanted to actually reflect on a particular incident from the life, the lives of the Sahaba of the Prophet And before I reflect on that, I wanted to kind of preface um, how I want to reflect on this incident today. So I've spoken about this incident in previous um, settings, and it's one that you can approach from many angles, and it's one that truly shows the shift in mindsets and the way that that verily the most noble of you in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala became a lived reality and a culture, that spiritual transcendence that Imam Zaid was talking about that the Qur'an calls us to, to transcend, uh, was a lived reality of the Sahaba of the Prophet after uh, the tarbiyah of the Prophet the mentorship of the Messenger, peace and blessings be upon him, and what he was able to impart uh, to the companions through his actions first and foremost and through the powerful messages that he delivered in regards to this subject and others. And I'll preface it with this. When I look at the Prophet life, and I think of that incident of the Messenger of Allah looking out at the companions for the very last time as they were in Salah, and Anas ibn Malik describing that incident of the Prophet uh, removing the curtain and looking at the companions in prayer for the very last time and Anas describing the illuminated face of the Prophet describing the happiness of the Prophet in those moments and how proud the Prophet was of his Ummah right because the Prophet looking at his Ummah in Salah that was a sign of the continuity of that prayer the continuity of the message that the Prophet had left uh, with this blessed Ummah, the Ummah of the Blessed Prophet And he was proud of us uh, when we say that with an optimism that we be included amongst his followers, that we be included amongst those that he loved He was proud to see that Salah had become the imperative of the community and that even though he was leaving, what he imparted of Salah was going to stay. Uh, the incident that I'm going to speak about briefly, and I'm sure is one of the companions that uh, Sheikh Mendes covers, is the incident of Ubadat ibn Samit when he meets Muqawqis uh, of Egypt. And Ubadat ibn Samit was uh, one of the blessed companions of the Prophet وسلم. He accompanied the Prophet وسلم through every one of his battles. He's one of those that was honored with writing the revelation from Kitab al-Wahi. He is the husband of uh, Um Haram bint Minhan uh, who has a blessed story in and of herself and was very dear to the Prophet And he's one of the very first Ansar of the Prophet So he is an Ansari man uh, who came to receive the Prophet very early on to meet him in Mecca, to pledge to him and to uh, receive him in al Madinah al-Munawwara. He was uh, a very black man, a very tall man, a very beautiful man, a very noble man. Um, 
he had a, a, a dominant physical presence, but an even more dominant spiritual presence. And these, this incident uh, of his imposing presence, his imposing speech, his imposing strength, his imposing beauty, his imposing character uh, is uh, taking place in the context of the Muslim forces uh, entering into Egypt, which was under Byzantine control at the time. And this was uh, after, you know, at the command of Amr al-Asr under uh, Umar al-Khattab al-Asr khilafah. And as these, uh, these, these blessed companions come forth to speak to uh, the, the ruler of uh, the Babylon uh, fortress in Egypt, Al-Muqawqis, Ubadah steps forward. And Al-Muqawqis, he, uh, he looks at him and uh, in shock, he says, move this black one away from me and, and, and put forth someone else who will speak to me and uh, and 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 will not um, upset me, will not frighten me, and you know, you know that you know that things have changed when Ubadah radiAllahu anhu doesn't have to answer for himself. You see, if Ubadah ibn Samit radiAllahu anhu had to answer him and say to him, "Inna akramakum atqaqum," the most noble of you in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa taala uh, is the one with the greatest piety. If Rabadat ibn Samad had to justify his own presence, then that would have meant that he was fighting this battle alone, that he had to represent the prophetic shift, not just first and foremost in Tawheed, but all the implications uh, of Tawheed, all the implications of monotheism now in uh, equalizing the creation of Allah, the human uh, creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and only pre- preferring one to the other by virtue of taqwa. But Ubadah ibn Samit didn't have to reply. The companions responded on his behalf and says, that this one is the best of us in his intellect and in his, in his wisdom and his knowledge. He is the best of us. He's the one that's most deserving. And he is our leader and he has been appointed over us. And when we have anything amongst us in terms of shura or difference, we refer back to him. And we have given him our pledge and we will never go against him. And they also said, And verily, black and white to us are equal. Meaning you people still live in ignorance, but to us, they are equal. And no one is given preference except by their taqwa, except by their piety. And Muqawqis is shocked by the response of the companions. And he says, how do you accept this black man to be the leader of you? Rather, he should be the least of you. And they respond once again in defiance, uh, saying that in Islam, we do not have these false, um, you know, these false hierarchies that do not exist uh, and that, ha- that, are, that are man-made out of jahriya, out of ignorance. He's the best of status amongst us. He is the most noble of us. He is the most wise of us. And we do not frown upon what you frown upon. You know, we, meaning we don't frown on the color of his skin the way that you frown upon the color of his skin. So Al-Muqawqis finally basically resigns himself to having to speak to Ubadah ibn Samit. And he tells him, you know, come forward and speak to me, O black man. But he says, you know, be gentle because uh, your, your blackness scares me. And if you speak harshly to me, then it's going to scare me even further. And Ubadah ibn Samit, and this is perhaps part of the 
imposing speech and wisdom that he has. Rabadat ibn Samit, he, he basically, um, you know, ex- exposes the man's vulnerability and Muqawqis' vulnerability. He said, I have heard what, you know, I've heard what you've said. And he says, listen, if you're afraid of me, he says, uh, that I have left behind me, that, that behind this delegation are a thousand people, a thousand men, and they're all just as black as me. And even ashaddu sawad minni, and they're even blacker than me, and they're going to scare you even further. So if you're scared of me because you don't like black people, wait till you see the the thousand black men that are behind me, and they will scare you um, even more. And he goes on to give this really eloquent, um, long speech, which I can't cover now. But at the end of it, uh, Subhanallah al-Muqawqis, he says, "Hal kalami Have you ever heard the words of one like this one?" And he says that I was afraid of his appearance, but what he has said scares me even more than his appearance, um, which is just powerful, right? The, the, the imposing words of Urbat ibn Samit. All this to say, by the way, and, and the point that I want to make here, imagine how proud the Prophet would have been of that moment, right? Where it's not just the Prophet setting a standard and reminding the companions over and over again that these types of hierarchies are from jahli, are ignorance. It's not just the Prophet wasallam appointing Bilal to stand on the Kaaba and to give the Adhan, even if some people made some of the comments that they made and uh, they, they preferred other than Bilal for various reasons. But it has gone from what is acceptable and unacceptable to what is expected, the new standard amongst the companions of the Prophet and when we get to a point where the standard has been set where those that are oppressed and discriminated against don't have to defend themselves because a community of believers all come to the aid of the one that is oppressed and the one that is discriminated against and the one that is wronged when there's a full embrace of our deen our history and everything that comes with it then we have truly elevated ourselves to a place that we're more worthy of making the Prophet ﷺ proud and we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be amongst those that he is proud of وسلم, on the day of judgment Allahumma ameen wa jazakumullahu khayran question was we want we want everyone to chime in as well we're probably only going to have time for like two or three questions overall because we're running a bit over time but let me start with this question. The question is directed to uh, Imam Amr Suleiman, but I hope everyone can chime in here and say, the question is, can you give us two, a couple of practical tips? Uh, what I can do in my own community to help uh, eradicate this disease of racism? Because it's so, it's so, it's, it's very common, especially here in the United States, even among the Muslim community, it's something that's a very widespread. So what can I do practically um, uh, as an individual in my community, maybe not a leader of my community, to help uh, eradicate this? And I'd love for all the other teachers to chime in as well, inshallah. I'm going to be super quick. I, I see the best dressed imam of uh, Sheikh Arbaidullah Evans. I didn't say that. Imam Zaid, the music of Sheikh Dawood and 
Allahu Akbar. Uh, what an honor to be with you all. So my answer is I'm st I'm still thinking about that poem, man. It was tremendous, Allah man. Mm -hmm. And 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 de delivered with you know requisite passion and, and, and talent, man. Mashallah. May Allah bless you. I have the, the quickest answer, support mana. That's all I got. So practical Allah. tip is support mana. And then I'll I'll Allah. I'll hand it off uh, inshallah to those Allah. that are more disturbing to speak. Imam <laughs> Um just very very briefly, um we uh and Imam Zaid Hafidullah Ta'ala was talking about the spiritual dimensions or we could say the metaphysical dimensions behind racism and the primary disease, uh spiritual disease, according to Sheikh Ahmadu Bamba. That informs racism is arrogance, kibber. So one of those uh, suggestions from a community standpoint is for people in the community to go into another community and do khidma or service for those individuals. But the khidma can't be a type of patronizing or paternalistic type of khidma, right? It's the type of khidma that you're going there to serve the people for the pleasure of Allah Azawajal, and actually you are doing more benefit for your soul than the actual the khidma that you're doing for the people, right? So we're stuck in our silos, suburban, urban. Um, we, we, we stick in our own social circles. Obviously we have COVID-19 um, restrictions, but when we pray to Allah to lift this waba from us, but Inshallah, when this is lifted, we're able to give um, real uh, khidmah and take that that jihad, that struggle uh, to to step outside of our comfort zones and actually travel into different uh, communities. Imam Zay, can you can you add to that? Jazakumullah khair. Um, uh, I was seeing Sheikh Ubaidullah in deep thoughts, so I think he should add. <laughs> He's reflecting at a very deep level. I just, I just I, you know, this is this is uh, so delightful for me, man. Just to spend time with you, Imam Zaid, and just to be able to look at you, mashallah. And um, but no, mashallah. The, the, the question is a, a profound one, and I think that sometimes over analysis can lead to paralysis. You know, I find mm. that we have to get beyond some of this, um, you know, uh, excessive planning. I think. The important thing is lead to arafu. We have to we have to get to know one another. Sometimes that is agenda enough, just to enter each other's spaces and to move beyond these barriers that have separated us in terms of geographic loca location, social economic status, um, and just to be in the same space to know of our common humanity, man. You know, I, I think that. Um, a lot of these racist attitudes, to my mind, they come from two sources. One is insecurity, that a person is insecure about the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that they believe that someone's promotion is their demotion, right? That in esteeming someone else that they're losing something, and recognizing the beauty or the brilliance or the ingenuity of someone else, they're losing something. And the other thing is ignorance, but Jahl basit, simple ignorance that 
We have degraded real encounter. You don't spend any time with black communities or you don't spend any time with white communities or you don't spend any time with Arab communities or you don't spend any time with South Asian communities. And so what you fill in that, that missing actual experience with is stereotypes, lies, sensational tales. Uh, 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 you know, and, and so Lita Arufu, spending enough time so that we get to see that, subhanAllah, you know, there are you know, things that make us different. But that which we have in common is certainly greater, la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah than those things which those things which separate us, man. So I think you know, making an earnest and intentional effort to share space with one another, just to eat, to to allow the children to play together, to watch them grow up, to talk about life, and I think very powerful coalitions, uh, and 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 synergistic relationships grow out of that kind of fellowshipping and Allah knows best. Yeah, yeah I'd like to add just briefly that uh, in, in the Shafi school and the, really one of the people who was most uh, strong in this opinion is that as, as long as you can make, I mean, practice your religion in a non-Muslim, it's forbidden for you to leave to migrate even to a Muslim land, because he says that the space you occupy in that non-Muslim realm, that is Darul Islam. And if you leave, you leave a void that can only be filled by, by Kufr. Mm. And, and so in any case, I say that to preface that uh, a lot of times we, we focus on what we can do for others as an affirmation of our, in this context, our anti-racism. So if I can go to this community and do some service or help or teach something, then that's how I affirm my anti-racism. But I think it's a lot of times we have to look at what we can do for ourselves to look inward and, and to make sure that that void like to, to go back to the, the original uh bit of information about the, the shafi opinion on staying in darul kufr if if you make sure that space you occupy is a space of anti-racism and so not necessarily going out to that's an important part of it not to negate that but to make sure that you yourself are looking at yourself and you're looking at what you can do to transcend that insecurity that was referenced that sometimes pushes us to these outward displays of quote unquote anti-racism and there's nothing wrong with that but if we solve the problem within then everyone we deal with so it's not just a conscious effort to be part of an event so I'm going to the protest. Go to the protest, by all means, if it's safe and nonviolent and there's something positive. But it becomes, I am a living embodiment of what I proclaim. Therefore, my affirmation doesn't lie in an event. It doesn't lie uh, in a particular initiative. 
but it touches every single individual I come in contact with, regardless of the space I'm in, especially yeah. in that home space. Because a lot of times we can fall into doing something externally, but when we're in our own space that reinforces those prejudices, we fall right back into the, the negativity that we're trying to escape. To just to, to try to make that real. It's like the guy, he, he, he goes home, he, at work, he's the nicest guy to all the women on the job. If the secretary spills coffee on him, it's like, Malish, don't worry about it. You know, we all have that. Then he goes home and screams at his wife. Allah, Allah. And so we we want to be the person that has that moral, that spiritual integrity and consistency. So everyone we come into contact with, every situation that we're in radiates that spirit of anti-racism. And, and our anti-racism isn't just confined to an event. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm not saying don't do everything uh, that was mentioned in terms of visiting, getting involved. That's very powerful. But let the foundation for that be something deeper and something of, of, of greater integrity so that it transcends everything that, or it, excuse me, alhamdulillah. It informs and permeates everything that we do and every situation we're in. Jazakumullah khair, Imam Zaid. So um, another question is, and, and this is post Imam Zaid, but I hope everyone can contribute uh, to this one is, um, someone was saying that I agree that, you know, racism is a uh, spiritual disease, but how do you, um, how do you speak to people who are not spiritual uh, from that standpoint? Like, how do you convince someone who's not spiritual or maybe religious that the 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 root cause of racism is 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 spiritual? It's a spiritual malady. Um, how do you and 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 maybe I can add on to that. Like, for those who are participating in like Black Lives Matter uh, protests, you know, what should I, how should we be operating during that engagement? You know, if if we're coming to it from a spiritual perspective, how do we interact with those who don't come to it from that perspective? Teach them Islam. Mm -hmm. Because then, then they'll be, if we teach people truly Islam, I think that's our re responsibility, then they'll be in a position to understand that perspective. And while we're teaching, uh, we, we support others. So I'm not saying don't go to a Black Lives Matter protest if you see some good in it. And if you see you have an, especially if you have an opportunity in that, that context to help people see that as a Muslim, you are standing with the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed. Uh, but ultimately, th those are intermediary steps. Ultimately, we have to teach people the religion. And that, that starts, of course, very incrementally. And while we're doing that, to, to try to represent the values uh, that, that we uh, advocate. So is, there, there are multi-levels of engagement. But I think one, one mistake we're making, the two mistakes we're making, 
this is just my personal opinion that's uh, amenable to to being corrected or critiqued uh one mistake is i think we've abandoned uh, a position of leadership in the sense like why can't we organize our own protests that from beginning to end reflect the values of our religion while focusing the attention of our community on a particular social issue. And, and then secondly, I, I think we have to begin to, and it goes back to the first, just abandoning our position of leadership. If you're really, really concerned about uh, Black Lives Matter protests, then make sure the intensity that those protests manifest in election years, like 2016 and 2020, continues between elections. And you'll be the one pushing because uh, uh, if, if we just focus on elections, which are increasingly polarizing, because it's a zero sum game, we don't have a parliamentary electoral system where say like this now, the presidential election the, the winning party gets 48% of the seats in Congress and the, the, the winners get 48, the losers get 46, and then some third parties get the balance. It's winner take all. And so you have, not, and right now you have 70 some odd million frustrated Trump supporters. Just as in 2016, you had 60 some odd million frustrated Hillary Clinton supporters. And, and so the, these polar extremes, they're not sustainable. This system, uh, what, what happened January 6th is just a harbinger of what's coming. The, this system of winner take all, and there's no way for the, for the loser to express themselves uh, when they're out of power through the political system. It, it's not sustainable. And, and so what can you do to help uh, sustain efforts, at ex extra systemic efforts at systemic change that are divorced from the electoral cycle. Otherwise, the, the electoral cycle and the, the nature of our actions and how they're used only enforce, reinforce the divisions. So those, those, those people, anyway, I'm, I'm deviating. Make sure that you are doing things extra systemically that are divorced from the electoral cycle to affect change. Otherwise, the, the powerful actors within the two-party system will manipulate what you do to advance their agenda with full consideration of what your agenda might be. Jazakallah This will probably be the final question, so I'd like to ask the others to add on to that. You know, how do we frame our interaction with those who are not religious, not Muslim, in our activism, given that we view racism essentially or at its root as a spiritual disease? How do we interact with people who don't come from that framework? Um, maybe, maybe Madawood, could you go next on that? Okay. Okay. Can I well, can I quickly? I want to share something what my my teacher said. And because this will, uh, it, 
is, is the best thing one could do. He said, uh, yani, he frequently would say, yani, Rajulun Wahidun Sahibul Hal, you ethir ala elfi Rajil. Wa elfi Rajilin bila halin, la you ethirun ala Wahid. That one person with a, a refined spiritual state can affect a thousand people. A thousand yeah. people collectively with no state can cannot affect yeah. a single person. So just working on yourself and then going out there, your your the this tongue of your state has an effect on people and helps move people and societies in a positive direction. Mm. Sorry about that, Imam. In regards to the question, I think that an issue that we have as Muslims, before we're trying to convince people who aren't Muslims of this framework, uh, I think we as Muslims need to get straight on our own framework. I, I think that actually comes first. And innocently, I think that many of us have adopted the nomenclature and, and the epistemology of others who don't have an Islamic framework to the point that we have not done to Dabr and contemplated the Quran, even as we use the terms that we deploy, if you understand what I'm saying. So one of the geniuses of the nation of Islam, though we disagree with their Aqidah, is that they had a truly independent framework and even came up with their own nomenclature and then propagated that to the broader society. Like they came up with words like technology, for instance. Like that wasn't a, a term. They kept the technology, right? <laughs> Just using that as an example. We have a hadith that says, "Likulli shayin hakika," right? For every truth, there is a deeper reality. So we as Muslims, we believe that behind all physical manifestations are metaphysical realities, right? So. Are we viewing things from this framework? I'll give an example. Um, there's, a there's a different definition for racism in Webster's Dictionary than what one would read from critical race theory. Critical race theory would say that racism is only confined to prejudice plus power. Now, if we just did tadabur on the Quran and we look at this hadith, likuli shin hakika, we couldn't reduce racism to just prejudice plus power. If we say Iblis is the original racist, Iblis never had positional power over Abu Bashir Adam salam. And for that matter, Shaitan is not a Sultan over us. And this is what the Quran clearly says this, right? And even for those who have president, uh, positional power, they may be able to afflict more physical harm, but that doesn't mean that harm cannot come from the one who doesn't have positional power. You understand what I'm saying? So. Um, and, 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 and these are things that we readily can't see. And we, as a, so I, I would just uh, offer this challenge and we could go into it more, but I offer this challenge to us who are in activism spaces and especially talking about racial justice. We really need to interrogate the nomenclature and the definitions that other people gave us. Um, and maybe we shouldn't accept the definitions and framework that other people gave us as like objective truth. Uh, the Quran is our objective truth. Uh, the the Asutu Nabawiya is authentic, is objective truth, right? And we start from that point, and then those things that jive with it, we use it. Those things that that don't, then we flesh those out and we kind of push those to the side. And then once we get our own framework straight as a community, then we can better uh, articulate and embody 
with our uh, beloved Sheikh uh, Imam Zaid, uh, Hafidhullah Ta'ala, uh, just articulated. Allah knows best. Um, Imam Omar, can you add to that, please? I don't want to pollute anything. Um, mashallah, I, I, I'm going to be um, reflecting on what Imam Zaid mentioned about um, يعني رجل واحد بحال يؤثر على ألف وألف وألف رجل بغير حال. Imam Zaid, I'm asking you to send it to me. That يؤثر على واحد. <laughs> there are so many times that I've witnessed that the one person that changes the atmosphere of thousands. Um, and subhanAllah, um, I was just thinking about, you know, even in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Yati Rajul as Samin and Adim Palayazinu Indullahi Janahabahuma. Uh, on the day of judgment where the prophet's license said a person comes with a great posture right huge big mighty and he doesn't weigh uh the wing of a mosquito in the sight of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and um, that's a powerful uh statement that imam zaid just gave us and i would say that it just takes me back to you know, when you look back at our history and you look back at Umar ibn Khattab telling Abu Ubaidah um, and, and I think this is a really powerful conversation. Abu Ubaidah and Umar ibn Khattab they're both from Al-Ashr al-Mubashira. They're both from the Ten Promised Paradise. I mean, they are, you don't get more noble than, than two of the ten. So between them, they make up one-fifth of those that were promised paradise in that in that long hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu went out and told Umar al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, you know, he commented on his on his dress and how he would be coming in the appearance of Umar radiallahu anhu entering into Al-Quds. Abu Ubaidah radiallahu anhu was not a man of vanity. Uh, he was a man that Umar radiallahu anhu visited in his home and saw his lack of possessions and cried over his uh, over his lack of possessions. And um, subhanAllah, you know, he was saying that because he, he wanted, you know, the best appearance for the Muslims, the best imposition of the Muslims in that, in that, in that space. And uh, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu responds and, and says, I wish it wasn't you that said it to me, Abu Ubaidah, I wish it was someone else. And he says um, that we are people that Allah gave honor to through Islam. And if we seek it through other than Islam, Allah will humiliate us. Um, I, I, I just want to sort of reemphasize, you know, make sure that you never stop speaking from your foundations, from your framework, from your perspective, even if you're in a space that does not adopt it at all. Um, that doesn't mean you have to adopt the space um, because you have internalized the Sunnah of the Prophet's license. We all need to do a better job of that. Um, well, not, not, not everyone here, Michelle. <laughs> we all as a, as a community um, really need to pause and reflect. Uh, you know, and I've noticed that just, you know, the, the idea of, of just starting off, uh, you know, the, the remarks that you give at a place with assalamu alaikum or bismillah ar-Rahman rahim uh, I'm not going to erase that. That's, that's how I'm going to start. That's who I am. Uh, and then, of course, at a deeper level, the foundations, the, the epistemology, 
uh, where we act from. So yes, we have to be more intentional about our frameworks, about them being authentic and effective um, frameworks from the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet and, and pause. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll end with one thing. You know, if the, I've said this many times, um, and maybe I need to listen to it more myself, and I know it's COVID and we're all, we're living in an isolated world. Um, but the Prophet said, find me amongst the downtrodden. Like if you're looking for me, you, you can bet that you're going to find the Prophet amongst the downtrodden. You're going to find him you're going to find him with the widows and the orphans and the downtrodden, the marginalized, the poor. That's who you're going to find the Prophet sitting with, the Sufas of the world, uh, the people that are uh, not being looked at, the Prophet is looking at them. The, the people that are not being looked after, the Prophet is looking after them. Uh, the Prophet did not show up for the symbolic protest. He, he lived a life amongst the downtrodden, alayhi salatu wasalam. That's where you would find him uh, in his normal day-to-day. And when we are engaged in uh, prophetic khidmah uh, service, your word carries more weight. Like, like I think people really underestimate that. You know, Imam Zaid, when, when, when Imam Zaid said, uh, we, we can't forsake our position as leaders, I know Imam Zaid did not uh, intend by that. I know, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I hope no one understood from that. I know that's not what he intended at all, that forsake your, your spokesperson role. No, like forsake the leader as a servant of the people. That's what, that's what I understood from what, of course, Imam Zaid, you're here, and, and uh, you know, like, like I, I, I know that that's what I understood from you. Is being a leader means being a servant of the people. And so being a leader is not just being out front. Being a leader is, is serving in the back when, when others are, are neglectful of their duties. And um, inshallah ta'ala, I hope we can do that more effectively. And when we do that, just like the Prophet sallam, when he stood up on Safa, his word carried weight alayhi salatu wasalam because of who he was alayhi salatu wasalam. His word carried weight. So our word will only carry weight when our service is consistent, sincere, and prophetic. And uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us what's best uh, and to guide through us to what's best and to, to use us uh, for uh, for that good. Allahumma ameen. No, we, no we, we definitely have to serve. And I think when we talk about spiritual qualities, one of the greatest is love. We, we have to love each other. The, the Prophet he loved his ummah. He, he loved the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so when we speak on these matters, no one should get the impression, I think is a good clarification that Sheikh Umar mentioned that when we're not servants. The Sayyidu Qawm Qadimuhum, or Qadimul Qawm Sayyiduhum. And but we love everyone. Every, no matter what you're doing, you know, we're all we're all on the same team you know you, you might be a social justice warrior you might be a, a person who's in your house making a khatam of quran every month doing your awrad at car you never participate in any demonstration or anything but we're, we're all on the same team at the end of the day that's the team of la rasulullah and I, I, I have love for all of my brothers and sisters. I'm sure everyone 
who spoke in tonight would say the same thing. You know, we might differ on some things, the particulars, but the, the universals that unite us are far greater than the particulars that are used by shaitan to divide us. And so if we can that space, you know, we're in good shape, inshallah. We have a bright future as a community. They just mentioned al-muttafaq alayhi akthar min al-mukhtaraf. Al-mukhtaraf fi. What we agree upon is so much greater than what we differ upon. You know, what we we have the rope of Allah. And I'll just end by saying I love all of you for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I love you too. I feel relief in my heart just looking at you all. Allah you're deep in thought again, man. Sheikh Abedullah, you have the the final word here. I'll make it. I'll make it. Inshallah, appropriately short. Inshallah, you know this this issue, and I think you know the questioner asked um, a very good question. I've explored this uh, in many different spaces, and what I've what I've arrived at, uh, and Allah knows best is that if we talk about usul, if we talk about like the root causes, if we talk about like the basis of something like racism in spiritual illness, then we, we, we humanize racism, you see? Because all of the spiritual illnesses that a racist might be afflicted with, I can certainly be afflicted with, you see? It forces me to be introspective. I have to say, you know, if it's about justice, where am I being unjust? If it's about love, where am I failing to show love? If it's a, it, and I think that, you know, I was in one space and I was attempting to look at, you know, the spiritual root causes of racism. And a friend of mine said to me, Ubaidullah, we don't need to humanize racism, right? We don't need to humanize racism. And I said, no, I think that's exactly what we need to do. Because if we humanize this issue, then it becomes something that we confront collectively. But I think there is something about our context that incentivizes us to demonize instead of humanize, right? Um, and I think you know social media has a lot to do with that. I think the echo chambers in which we speak, you know, have a lot to do with that. But when we talk about these things, the spiritual illnesses, it's, it's something that, you know, uh, is relevant to all of us. And you can't say it's the 99, you can't say it's the 1%, or it's these people, it's, it's all of us. Now, those who are um, guilty of, you know, the kind of injustice that has greater ramifications because of where they're positioned, Perhaps we can we, we can we can differentiate, but the spiritual root causes are all the same. Mm -hmm. right? They're all the same. So if I'm talking about racism as a as a spiritual illness, then it forces me to look at myself. And I think that we have uh, you know a society of people that, in our obsession with outward justice, we're obscuring right something about our reality. Is obscured, and I think that um, you know sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not in any way, kind of wholesale charging anybody with being insincere, but sometimes a focus on everything going on out there is a very easy, convenient, 
and comforting way to ignore everything going on in here. You understand what I'm saying? And I think that uh, when you talk about those spiritual root causes, I mean, that's that's where you go. You know, that's where you go. Uh, and, and may Allah help us to be people that embody, you know, the message that we bring. And that if I'm encouraging somebody to be introspective about privilege or about injustice, I've done said introspection. I mean, real quick example, Tonic, and I'll close with this, man. This is much easier said than done. You know, when I, when I lived in Egypt and I was working, it was the first time that I experienced unearned American privilege, right? I was being paid more for the same job that Egyptians were doing. And I said to myself, man, I see why white folks like this, man. This is it's hard. To, you know, it's, hard to, you know it's, it, 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 it's, it's difficult to actually request an audience with, with your employer and say, you know, I don't think this is right that I'm being paid more just because I'm an American. See, that's, that's difficult. But if I, if, I, if I confine myself to talking about the privilege that other people enjoy, then I don't have to be a person of pissed. I don't have to be a person of adil, you see? Uh, but when you talk about those spiritual root causes, you, you know, you're forced to go there and Allah knows best. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Uh, Tariq, do you have, I mean, are, are they going to kick you off the platform or something? I just want to... <laughs> no, 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 go ahead, Imam Zaid. No, conversation. I mean, because again, if, if we look at it as a spiritual problem and a, a problem of the corruption of our, our souls, Imam Ghazali mentions this, four ways to identify it. I think so what uh, Sheikh uh, Ubaidullah was talking about was identifying those defects within yourself. So he, he said there's four way. One is the guidance of, of a sheikh who's trained in these matters and recognizing the diseases of the soul and guiding you past them. The second, he said, was a sincere friend. Siddiq mm al-Nasih, -hmm. who, who you encourage because you know their piety, their honesty, their sincerity. If you see anything in me, that's wrong, then let me know about it so I can correct it. Right. And the third he said was your enemies. Listen to the criticism of your enemies. Mm. Because they're not gonna try to flatter you. Mm. So your friend might flatter you, and so you don't want to hear that. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh, me? Yeah, I am well. <laughs> You know, I'm trying to be humble like that, but I like hearing that. And then the fourth he said was mixing up with the people mm -hmm. along with mass. Because he said, as you mix up with the people and you see the defects they have, he said, you can be assured that you probably have the same thing that mm -hmm. you see in them because human nature doesn't differ so much that there's such a broad range that what you see consistently in the people isn't manifested in you. And so when we see those things, that the racism, it behooves us to step back and say, you know what, at some level, am I also manifesting that? So, yeah, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to just have a conversation Sometimes you get a, the talking heads, but it's good to like just 
listen, respond, interact. Uh, if we could have some virtual tea, we could go on all night. Aloha. Another coffin. Aloha. <laughs> 